Welcome to the Manor. Welcome back to the Twin Terrors, macabre manor of meat, metal, and mayhem. I'm Jody. I'm James. Woohoo! Yay! That's what they all say when I announce myself. Words. <laughs> Hooray! We got him in the head <laughs> with a brick. <laughs> now he's thick. Wait, sorry, Wait, wrong what? band. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sure. Uh, thanks for the yeah, the whole thing there. <laughs> Uh, you're welcome <laughs> yay alright so this episode we uh, are on my yes <laughs> nah this guy's gonna say all my life I want to be a rock and roll flautist but uh, that, that's okay let's just, let's just move on <laughs> uh, okay so we're going to continue uh, this episode our discussion on Deep Purple particularly the Mark II lineup and to recap they formed the Mark I lineup in early 1968 with John Lord on keyboards, uh, Richie Blackmore on guitar, Ian Pace on drums, Nick Simper on bass, and Rod Evans on vocals. Uh, by June of 1969, they have released three albums, uh, had a couple of hit singles in the U.S., which they have toured twice. At that point, Lord Blackmore and Pace decided on changing the musical direction of the band and replaced Simper and Evans with <laughs> Roger Glover and singer Ian Gillen. Yes. <laughs> that, that, sounded, that sounded like it's Lord Blackmore. <laughs> oh, well, well, you oh, know. Lord Blackmore, and he would be okay with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, poor Richie. <laughs> poor, yeah, poor Richie. <laughs> Uh, the Mark II anyway. lineup, yeah, the Mark II lineup performs the concerto for group and orchestra with the Royal Philharmonic, uh, released as an album in December 1969, and they followed that up with the aggressively harder album Deep Purple and Rock, uh, which came out in June 1970, and the progressive and experimental Fireball, which came out in July of 1971, which brings us to the Fireball tour and September. Again, uh, taking Simon Robinson's liner notes, this time from the uh, 25th anniversary edition of Machine Head, in September during the Fireball tour, while they were on the tour bus, traveling to a uh, show at Portsmouth in England, a reporter on the bus with them asked them how they go about writing songs. So on the spot, they write this song and fit it into the set list that night. Uh, and it's a track called Highway Star. And we'll get to that a little bit more here in a bit, but on the Fireball tour, they found that most of the songs from Fireball did not lend themselves to being performed live. Or my speculation is that Richie Blackmore found he disliked most of the Fireball album and didn't want to play any of it. <laughs> but Highway Star and another song, an up-tempo blues tune called Lazy, uh, quickly worked their way into the live set. Deep Purple toured Europe through October of 1971. Um, they had to cancel their U.S. tour that November after only doing a couple of shows uh, due to Ian Gillen becoming ill. The unexpected time off in November turned out to be advantageous as it gave them time to develop ideas for the next record, which was scheduled to be recorded in December. At the suggestion of their management, they planned to record outside of the U.K. The band also wanted to record in a live setting, um, in other words, like a performance hall of some sort. Uh, instead of using a recording studio. It would still be considered a studio recording, 
because a it's not recorded in front of an audience and b multiple takes would be recorded the best would then be mixed into the final version as opposed to a live recording which would be in front of an audience and you only get the one chance to do it and you know in, unless you're kiss and eddie kramer and you go back into the studio and almost re-record the entire album. Uh, <clears throat> uh, anyway, oh uh, yeah. <clears throat> so, the, the, so Deep Purple decided to record in Montreux, Switzerland, at a place called the Casino, using the Rolling Truck Stones Mobile, aka the Rolling Stones Mobile or Rolling Truck Stones Thing, as Ian Gillen would famously call it. And I will let James talk <laughs> in, about in the it. lyrics, right? Yeah, in the lyrics, yeah. And I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm dropping in lyrics from this, mostly from a song, and there's a reason for this. If you know the history of this entire album, you'll know why. <laughs> um, but you've got some stuff on the on the Rolling Stones mobile. Just just a bit. It's it's not not anything huge. It's it came about in 1968, so a few years ago. Uh, the Stones decided they needed a new environment to record music. Um, because they, they didn't like the nine to five limitations of the regular studio. And uh, the Stones were going to use Mick Jagger's Stargrove's house, uh, but um, that really wasn't working out horribly well. So they decided to put together something that they could take anywhere. Uh, hence, the, uh, it, it would accommodate their 24-hour lifestyle. So uh, Ian Stewart, who was their uh, pianist and, and road manager at the time, so he suggested using a, a mobile, uh, some sort of state-of-the-art recording studio mounted in a truck that could be used anywhere. And, and they did use it at Stargroves, uh, Mick Jagger's English country estate. Uh, they recorded sticky fingers on it. There were a lot of people who used it. And I, I know we'll talk about Deep Purple specifically soon, so I, I won't get into that. But uh, bands such as Led Zeppelin used it for three and four. Uh, well, three and <laughs> Zoso or... <laughs> Uh, however you want to, however you want to call it, they started off fairly small. I think they started with like a, a twelve track or, or something, and then they bumped it up to twenty four later. And they they just kept making it nice. And and after a while, uh, it wasn't being used much. Uh, but they uh, actually just recently, a few years ago, in Calgary, Canada, uh, there was a group of people who were putting it back together. So the casino, uh, which was this place that Deep Purple found to record, Roger. Glover described it. Uh, he said it was a large structure, eight or 10 stories high, housing not only the concert hall that we were going to use, but several bars, restaurants, discos, convention areas, and of course, the large gambling rooms. At the time, it was also the home of the Montreux Jazz Festival. Uh, it was run by a guy named Claude Knobs, <laughs> as, as in Funky Claude was running in and out, pulling kids out the ground. We'll explain that line here in a minute. Knobs was also responsible for creating the Montreux Jazz Festival. And in case you're wondering why I'm spending so much time on this, and like I said, if you already know this. I am. I was just thinking to myself. Yes. Self, <laughs> why, is, why is Jody spending so much time on this? So good. I, I'm glad you're doing that. Here we go. On December 4th, 1971, the day before Deep Purple are set to begin recording in the casino's concert hall, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention are playing a matinee show. Near the end of Zappa and the Mother's performance, someone in the audience fires a flare gun into the bamboo ceiling. <laughs> That's genius. <laughs> yeah. The flare traveled through the bamboo, which I guess was sort of a like a drop ceiling. So there was the bamboo, but then there was a space above it 
into the actual ceiling. Uh, and the flare caught fire above the bamboo or the ceiling. It, it, the fire started above the bamboo, so no one could see it. Uh, but the staff saw what had happened and they went to Zappa and told him to announce to the audience that there was a fire and that they needed to calmly exit, which surprisingly the audience did. Now, apparently, as soon as Zappa made this announcement, the band just dropped their instruments and ran. <laughs> but yeah, the audience calmly walked out. As Roger Glover describes it, about an hour into the set, sparks were seen high up in the decorative bamboo ceiling over the audience. The band stopped playing. We didn't know it at the time, but apparently someone had fired a flare gun into the ceiling. Hurried whispers took place before a deadpan Frank announced that no one should panic, but there was a fire. With that, he rushed off the stage, followed <laughs> fire, by fire. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, with that, he rushed off the stage, followed by his amused and bewildered band. Uh, there followed instructions for the building to be evacuated, and people started filing out into a in a fairly orderly fashion. There was little or no panic except for a few broken windows and some kids being trapped in the basement, fortunately rescued by Claude. There's the line about pulling kids out the ground. Nice. At this point, there was barely a hint of fire, just a few wisps of smoke hanging around where the sparks had been seen. I walked outside and found that somehow I had become separated from the rest of the band. Unaware of any danger, I wandered back into the building to see if they were still inside. <laughs> I remember standing in front of the now empty stage in the deserted auditorium and inspecting Zappa's gear. The attraction was that he had synthesizers, and since these strange new instruments were then the cutting edge of music technology, I was interested to see what they looked like. I was impressed. He had two of them. However, my bandmates were not around, so I wandered out again. I say wandered because that is what it felt like. There was no panic as such. No urgency, no sense of impending doom. Back outside, I soon located the others where we had parked our rented cars. Ainsley Dunbar, who I think was playing in Zappa's band at that point, Ainsley Dunbar walked up and we chatted for a bit. Within minutes, the place was an inferno, and I do not use the word lightly. You know, as I mentioned, you know, the casino was like eight or ten stories high, according to uh, what Roger Glover had said. Uh, he goes on. Flames roared out and black smoke filled the sky. Fire engines came racing up and finally a sense of urgency was evident. Alas, too late. We retreated back to the comparative safety of the Europe Hotel and watched in awe as the huge building burned away, putting on its last spectacular show. For a while, there were fears for the surrounding buildings, especially an adjacent high-rise apartment block. But as it turned out, the casino, along with Frank Zappa and the mother's equipment, would be the only casualties. Apart that is, from our recording plans. So Claude Nobbs, um, like I said, the guy who uh, ran the casino, in spite of losing the casino, he worked hard to find Deep Purple a new recording location. At first they tried a place called The Pavilion, but they only managed to get the backing track to one song recorded before being told they could only record during the day because of noise complaints. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I don't know, but I, I do know at one point Deep Purple was in the Guinness Book of World Records as the loudest band in the world. So, yes, yeah. they were. 1972, Deep Purple were cited as the world's loudest band by the Guinness Book of World Records for a concert at the London Rainbow Theater. Story goes that 
three of their audience members lost consciousness due to the decibel levels. <laughs> uh, they, they were taken over then by uh, Man of War. Oh, yes. Yeah. I can, I can see that. Actually, I, I think the, the Who took them over first in 76, then Man of War took over the, the thing in 1984, and then again in 1994 at 129.5 decibels. And, and at that point, they stopped doing that in the Guinness Book of World Records. <laughs> Isn't 120 like the, the equivalent of a jet engine? I, I didn't look it up, but I know it's really fracking loud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Going on with Roger Glover's comments on this. As what we didn't know as we put our instruments to go out to the mobile and listen to the result was that the roadies had been desperately holding the doors shut against the police who were attempting to enter and stop us working. Thankfully, they managed to hold them off long enough for us to finish the song. Apparently, the noise level was such that we were keeping the entire town awake and there had been numerous complaints from irate residents. <laughs> I have, a, I have a good quote from Richie about it. Oh, cool. I mean, yes. I mean, Lord Blackmore. Yeah. <laughs> we, we did the whole thing in about four takes because we had to. Uh, Richie Blackmore told Radio 2. The police were banging on the door. We knew it was the police, but we had such a good sound in this hall. We were waking up all the neighbors for about five miles in Montreux because it was echoing through the mountains. I, I just, uh, I just getting the last part of the riff down. We just finished when the police burst in and said, you've got to stop. And we said, all right, we will stop. Because, but we had the track down. <laughs> <laughs> so a backing track, which was what they got finished. This, this was with no vocals. Um, and that, that's what it is. It's the instrumental portion of a song minus vocals and usually any solos by the various instrumentalists. I'll get to what that song is a little bit later. So they recorded this in December and some hotels, if you've ever read Stephen King's The Shining or watched one of the movies, um, you'll know that some hotels in mountainous regions, especially if they don't do, um, if, they're, if they're not like a ski resort or a ski lodge, uh, they'll close down for the winter if, if they're in kind of a spot that's hard to get to, especially if it snows a lot in that area. That was the deal with the location where Deep Purple eventually found a record. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. They ended up at the Grand Hotel. It was empty, cold, and bare. <laughs> Those are some good lyrics, boys. <laughs> yeah. Um, according to Richie Blackmore, uh, cables running into all the rooms. The residents couldn't believe it when they saw all the equipment. During playbacks, I had to go through half a dozen doors down a fire escape at the back of the hotel, across the courtyard where it was snowing at the time, and into the mobile. So they converted the hotel into a, a recording space. <laughs> Had to put up uh, mattresses on the walls to deaden the sound. Um, all sorts of stuff like that. And I'm not sure what date they began recording at the Grand Hotel, uh, but they were finished by December 21st. So the album Machine Head starts with the aforementioned Highway Star, an ode to fast cars and faster women.
Yeah, one of the main reasons Highway Star may be one of my favorite Deep Purple songs. It's inspired by Bach. It's got a classical feel to it. Yes, yes, it does. Yes, that is true. I have read that before. I just did not put it in my notes. <laughs> notes. <laughs> Next, they head into the mellow but upbeat Maybe I'm a Leo. Cranking it back up with a song about isolation, probably inspired by the frozen Swiss landscape they were in. Uh, a song called Pictures of Home. And uh, check out Ian Pace's drum intro here. one is rounded out with the somewhat funky Never Before, which served as the first single from the album. Side two, I'm going to read this quote from uh, Roger Glover. As I looked out through the large glass windows of the hotel and the dying afternoon light, I could see a huge pall of black smoke 
from the doomed building stretching high up and out over the placid blue surface of Lake Geneva. An unforgettable sight. The fire raged on into the evening, flames lighting up the night sky. I bet it was pretty. Uh, I bet it was. Actually, I've seen pictures of the fire. It's it's kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> he goes on to say, and this was a little bit about how they, they set up the, the hotel to record. During one of these lost and searching days, I awoke one morning in my room at the Europe. And in that moment between sleep and wakefulness, with eyes still closed, heard myself say the words, smoke on the water to the empty room. Opening my eyes, I wondered if I had actually said it out loud or if I had been dreaming. No, I concluded I'd actually spoken those words. Mentally filing it away, I thought nothing more about it until later when I told Ian Gillen. Sounds like a drug song, he observed. And since we were devoutly a drinking band, we dismissed it. <laughs> to say at some point during the proceedings title one the only track recorded at the pavilion became smoke on the water we had decided to write about our own experiences in making the album and justified the title by thinking of the pall of black smoke that hung over the lake that day as the fire destroyed the casino every line in the lyric is true although it would go on to be the most famous song on the album we thought of it then as just another track they intended for Smoke on the Water to be the B-side of, I think, never before. I'm not sure. I don't, it, it wasn't really, you know, considered to be a single, but audiences took to it. Radio stations loved it. And, you know, it's got this great riff. Yeah, one of the neat things about that riff, uh, you know, everybody that starts to learn how to play guitar figures out how to play Smoke on the Water fairly easily by doing power chords. Um, but uh, of course, if you listen to Lord Blackmore, yeah, nominee, <laughs> uh, it, it's it's not power chords. He does this uh, 
plucking thing with uh it's the same um it's the same fret instead of a power cord uh and because of a tuning uh, I, I think he calls it uh, he does something called all fourths so rather than the standard guitar tuning he actually tunes a couple of the strings a bit different um but instead of doing the power chord he just plucks the strings and you go up and down the fret and you don't even have to do a power chord you can just keep your one finger pressed down on the same fret um, pretty much fifth fret, third fret, fifth fret, and you bump up and down a couple of strings. But it's it's really neat. It's you can tell a difference too. Uh, when yes. I found this out, you know, because when I was a beginning player, uh, I did the power chord thing, and I after I found this out, I did the little plucking uh, thing, and it, it actually sounds way closer to the uh, actual music to the riff. Yeah, I've I um I saw somewhere. Uh, and I don't remember who said it, but I saw somewhere where somebody said nobody ever plays it correctly outside of Richie. Yeah, it's probably it's probably <laughs> Richie Blackmore who said it because I've it may have been. actually got a quote here, and I was I was trying to be nice because I've been making <laughs> been, <laughs> been a bit teasing all night. Um, but yeah, there's a quote here from Richie Blackmore saying that nobody plays it right. <laughs> that may have been who it was. Yeah, I you know, and we're we're kind of we're kind of busting Richie's balls a little bit, but. Um, Richie, Richie Blackmore is a great guitarist. Um, I, I mean, obviously he's, he's written and recorded some of the, the all time greatest hard rock, heavy metal riffs. Um, it, Richie just has a, like some people do, he just has a, a, a very large ego. So, you know, we're, we're just kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of giving him a little bit of guff over that. <laughs> But, and yeah, I'm not saying I've it's got a little bit of an ego. Yeah, I'm not saying it's an undeserved ego. I mean, the guy, you know, like I said, he's he's, yeah. yeah. I've got a bit of an ego, and I've not accomplished what Richie has. So yeah, <laughs> so, I can imagine what I would be like. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Dance for me, puppets! Dance for me. <laughs> so, um, smoke on the water is followed by the song Lazy, uh, which is a song supposedly about not getting out of bed in the morning because you're too busy tossing one off or rubbing one out, however you want to phrase that, depending on which gender you are. <laughs> closes with space trucking. According to uh, Roger Glover, it's all about space travel, but it's done in that 1950s lyrical style, which was really a way of saying nothing 
using a lot of phrases which really meant nothing at all. It's full of little puns like, we've got music in our solar system. We just sat around making up stupid little phrases about space. There you go. <laughs> when I first heard it as a teenager, well, I probably heard it before as a teen, but then when I started getting into it as a teenager, yeah. uh, the first several times I just assumed it was about getting high. Yeah. No idea why space trucking sounds like, it, you know, I, I yeah. don't do drugs. I've never really done drugs in my life. So, I, you know, <laughs> to, to a sober teenager from Indiana. Yeah, yeah. I, I can see that. This song's got to be about getting high. Yeah. <laughs> no judgment. I didn't care about, you know, one way or the other. It's a good song. But yeah, I like the space stuff. And that I worked out much later. <laughs> much, so much later, I don't want to talk about how long it took. <laughs> sessions uh, was the song When a Blind Man Cries, originally released as the B-side to Never Before, uh, but is now included on the album proper, which they've, they've done no, since. No, that's a proper album. <laughs> it is a proper album. I'll get to that in a moment. Um, but yeah, they started doing that when they did the 25th anniversary edition. Um, they, they started putting When a Blind Man Cries you know, on the actual album. If you're leaving Close the door I'm not expecting people Anymore me grieving lying on the floor whether I'm drunk or dead I really ain't too sure I'm a blind man I'm a blind man and my world is pale when a blind So Machine Head was released in March uh, 1972, uh, March 25th, 
hitting number one in the UK and number seven in the US, where it stayed in the Billboard Man. top 200 for 118 weeks. Uh, what were you, you going to say? Yeah. Yeah, and, and number one in Amst Australia on the Danish charts, the Finnish yeah. charts, the French charts, the German charts, the Yugoslav charts, and the Dutch. Yes. Can't forget about the Dutch. What about Canada? Fuck Canada. No, no. <laughs> well, it wasn't number one. I'm, uh, uh, <laughs> I would imagine it did well, but it did not hit number one. Oh, okay. I wrote down the number one countries and number seven in the U.S. <laughs> okay. Well, and it was top five in a bunch of other places, too. Uh, Norway, Austria, Italy, and Sweden. And hit number six in Japan, so still top ten there. Although considered a flop by the band, the single Never Before still managed to be a modest hit in Europe. However, it was Smoke on the Water, which became the big hit, especially here in the U.S., where it hit number four. Some accolades for the album. The song Highway Star, Guitar World readers, ranked the guitar solo number 15 and the greatest guitar solos of all time uh, back in 2015. Um, Smoke on the Water, Rolling Stone Magazine's 2004 list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. It's number 434. I think that is very low. It should be higher. <laughs> Total Guitar Magazine's Greatest Guitar Riffs Ever, ranked number four. Q Magazine in 2005, ranked at number 12 in the 100 Greatest Guitar Tracks. And VH1's 40 Greatest Metal Songs, ranked at number 37. And VH1's 100 Greatest Hard Rock Songs ranked at number 11. And Lazy, Guitar World 100 Greatest Guitar Solos, ranked it at number 74. The album is also considered an important step in the development of heavy metal as a musical genre. Um, Highway Star is sometimes referred to as the first speed metal song. Personally, I think it's a little slower than what I think of as speed metal, but a lot of the elements in the song have carried over into speed metal, I think. Well, maybe, but I, I could probably pick out a few other songs that came before this by a few years or more that, that I would say would be just as good of a grandpappy to speed metal. Speed metal. Yeah. Well, you could almost throw Immigrant Song by Led Zeppelin in there. Or Communication Breakdown. Or Communication Breakdown, yeah. Yeah, either of those. I mean, they. I think they are a little faster in tempo. Although, I think the time signature for Immigrant Song kind of throws that off a little bit. But <laughs> Yeah, if you have not heard this album, you need, to, you need to own this album. I'm not saying just check it out. You need to own this album. I mean, it, it is just, it's, it's an awesome album. I've never owned this album. <laughs> you need to own this album, damn it. <laughs> I, I, I love Deep Purple, but not as much as you. I have never owned a Deep Purple album. <laughs> but no, it is. I mean, I have heard all the songs. I love the songs. Yeah. I'll sing along when they come on the radio, whether people in the same vehicle want me to or not. <laughs> well, I mean, if it's me, I'm probably singing along with yeah. it. So, yeah. That's, <laughs> Your voice is as bad as mine, so it's... Yeah, see? <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll be on yeah, But, yeah. I mean, but uh, anyway, yeah, that's... Uh, so that's our episode on Deep Purple Machine Head. <laughs> so, yes, it, you it, it is a good album. album. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to buy it. You just have to have a friend who gives me one. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Anyway. Yeah. So... <laughs>
Yeah, we haven't officially wrapped this episode up, so let's wrap up this episode. (laughs) We will talk to you soon. I'm James. I'm Jody. Talk to you later. Bye. (laughs) The Macabre Manor is brought to you by the Twin Terrors. All rights reserved. Stay tuned for some fun outtakes. I don't know. I I was joking. I said, how about that one? Just... (laughs) Yes, how wonderful. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> I should have done this earlier. I had other things all ready to go and then kind of uh, forgot to pull out my, I even had my noble, my noble, my noble stones, my rolling stones, mobile things all out. Then I forgot to get the few things I have for deep purple. <laughs> ha, all right. I think I am now ready. I think. Slacker. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, we we're trying to find it when I giggled when you said Claude Knobs. Yeah. I actually wasn't giggling cause from his last name because of, you know, Knobs' penis. Um, it's from Terry Pratchett's character, Knobby Knobs. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, you've given me like a thousand CDs. I <laughs> listened to them all. <laughs>